may be a surprise to some, uh, but I, my name is Pastor Dan. Uh, I'm the next-gen pastor here at, uh, at uh, Fusion, and uh, I almost said next-gen, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not the pastor of next-gen. Uh, uh, so, but uh, yeah, next-gen pastor, young world pastor, zero to 18, uh, that is, that is uh, my area of responsibility and my privilege to serve and minister and uh, so I get to spend a lot of time with the kiddos in the back and with our youth. And, and I can tell you, we have some amazing young people in the next generation that is coming up in this house. And I'm telling you, there's amazing leaders, amazing future ministers, missionaries, people who are going to do some amazing things for Christ in the workplace, no matter what they choose in their profession. So we believe in training up and raising up disciples for Jesus uh, in the next generation and pouring into them because the Bible says to train up a child in the way they should go and they would not depart from it they may they may leave for a season or so that but the bible's promise is clear they will not depart from it and so, so we're believing in sowing in and investing in the next generation and uh, so pastor terry he's uh still on vacation and i uh, should be coming back here soon but um uh so he asked me to go and fill in so uh so pastor terry thank you for giving me the privilege and opportunity i honor you for that and uh, for allowing me to to preach at the pulpit while he's away. And uh, also, uh, I just want to give a shout out to my beautiful wife sitting here in the front row. Uh, she greatly supports me and greatly helps me in the back with the kiddos and with our youth. And I uh, could not do it without you, honey. So uh, yeah, give her a round of applause. Yeah, she deserves it. Um, so I, uh, so I, I was asked to do a part of the series here, the Dummy series, uh, like the books, you know, I remember we used to have the books like Windows 98 for dummies, and I remember, you know, we were trying to figure it all out whenever computers were a very new thing, and we were still doing dial-up. Uh, that was kind of more my childhood. I grew up in the 90s, uh, and so I still do remember a time where there was no such thing as cell phones, and there was no such thing as necessarily having internet in the home, and, uh, and so I, I'm part of that generation that kind of got best of both worlds. We got the childhood that really was just riding our bikes and enjoying life outside, and using our imagination. And then uh, as we got older, technology kind of grew with us. And so we kind of were the last generation to experience uh, freedom from technology and just got to be kids. And uh, so anyways, he asked me and I was like praying about it. And um, so the title of today's message is uh, Spiritual Violence for Dummies. And, uh, and we're going to jump in here. There's a, a scripture that is always kind of uh, when I was growing up in church and stuff, kind of threw me for a loop, and I didn't fully understand it. And, and so if you don't fully understand something, I just like to kind of dive in and go in deeper. And, and one of those scriptures is Matthew eleven twelve, 12. And, uh, and it says this, is the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, that, that scripture is like by itself, I, there's many different ways you could take it, and even some footnotes of certain Bibles will tell you almost a little bit of a different angle of what it's trying to say, and, and uh, I wanted to kind of um, do a little dive uh, and, and research, but it helps whenever you look at a scripture and you're like, huh, like what is, what is Jesus trying to say here? Because Jesus is the one who says this scripture here, and, uh, and, and it, it makes you like, what is he trying to say? What's the point of this 
uh, scripture because the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent taken by force can make you scratch your head. And so it helps to look at the context of the scriptures and the original language as well as the historical understanding as well. And these areas help us pinpoint what the heart behind the scripture is. So let's go ahead and look at the context of this scripture and what's kind of going on in the Bible at this time and why Jesus said this scripture. And so we're going to go on this little journey today of kind of diving in deep and kind of going scuba diving, if you will, going deep on this scripture to really see how it can be applied to our lives and that we can get everything from it. Um, so anyways, Matthew 11, two through six, here we go. Uh, and so when John heard in prison, this is John the Baptist, about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who was not offended because of me. Now in verse 5, Jesus is saying two Old Testament prophecies uh, to John the Baptist's disciples. Okay, And those two prophecies are actually about the Messiah. And they could be found in Isaiah 35, which is the blind seeing the lame walk and the lepers and, and are cleansed and the deaf hear. And then Isaiah 61, the dead are raised up and the poor of the gospel preach them. So they're both prophecies about the Messiah. So whenever uh, John the Baptist's disciples are like, hey, are you, are you the guy or should we be expecting someone else? Jesus merely just answers them the way how Jesus does sometimes. And he just shouts out some scripture of the Old Testament about the Messiah. And so you're seeing all these things. I'm reminding you these are what was already prophesied back in Isaiah. And so you're seeing them right now in your face. So this is the thing and I am the one. I am the Messiah. Essentially is what Jesus is saying. So John the Baptist, okay, is in jail. Now, most people I've heard that whenever they talk about it, sometimes they kind of give John the bad rap and they say, well, I think maybe John maybe might have been losing some faith a little bit because he's telling his disciples, hey, he goes, go ahead and, and, and you know, ask Jesus if he's the one or we should be looking for someone else, you know. Uh, but, you know, I tend to disagree on that because there's on a few things. Uh, first of all, John the Baptist, if you know, I mean, when he was in the womb of his mother and Mary, who had Jesus in her womb, whenever they first met or whatever, they like leapt at just the, they could sense each other, okay? And then not only that, but then John the Baptist, the dude uh, ate locusts and honey, and he wore camel hair, and he was out in the middle of the wilderness, and, uh, and he was a part of this, this group that, that, that just liked to kind of separate themselves from society and just pursue God. And so he was kind of like this hermit type dude and a uh, very radical lifestyle. And then not only that, but then whenever he went to go baptize Jesus, he was the one who baptized Jesus. And the thing was that he knew right off the bat who Jesus was. And the whole crowd there, all of a sudden, Jesus starts walking towards him. And he goes, hey, behold, the Lamb of God, you know. And, and, and he starts saying, and not only that, but then whenever he baptized Christ... What happened? Whenever Christ came out of the water, all of a sudden the dove came down, the heavens ripped open, and God the Father audibly, you could hear with your own ears, audibly was saying, this is my son who I'm well pleased. So I tend to disagree whenever I hear that John the Baptist would all of a sudden have doubts towards the end after having an encounter like that. I don't know about you, but if God split the heavens open and spoke about somebody, this is my son who I'm well pleased, and I can audibly hear it, that would put, leave a lasting impression on me. J just saying. And so <laughs> there's this thing here. Not only that, but then also Jesus begins to speak and affirm who John the Baptist uh, is and so uh, based off of how Jesus speaks about him, I, you have to kind of take that into consideration uh, because 
that's how it goes. So John the Baptist, I think, here's some of the things. I believe that uh, John the Baptist was a responsible leader. Uh, Jesus calls him a prophet. And, uh, and so as a prophet, I believe that John Baptist, when he was in prison, he knew that his time was close to, to the end. And I think as any good leader, I think he was trying to direct his disciples to all of a sudden begin to start seeing Jesus as the Messiah and have them have an encounter with Jesus. Just like any good spiritual leader is always wanting to drive you to you having your own encounter with God. Okay, because nothing speaks to you more. Not, nothing la- lasts in your impression. I remember talking with my brother-in-law, and we both were raised in church, and I remember we were saying that even in the hard times, even in the times where we felt alone, maybe felt like you know we were uh, on the verge of maybe backsliding or this or that, that there was those moments that we had, those encounters with God that we had that kept us on the straight and narrow, that, that reminded us that God is real because I remember this time at an altar at this place. I remember this time at summer camp or this time in a church service, and I remember God wrecked me, and it was so real to me that nobody could ever talk me out of it because I had an encounter. I'm telling you, when you have encounters with God, you don't forget them. You don't push them off to the side. They are those things that strengthen your walk whenever you're going through those trials and tribulations. And so I believe that John Baptist was just being responsible. I believe he was trying to get his disciples not just to, you know, not just talk them into it. No, Jesus is the guy now that you guys are going to need to go follow and this and that. He wanted them to encounter Jesus, wanted them to see what Jesus did in his ministry, and wanted to hear it from Jesus' mouth by, by himself. So then that way they would know whom to follow. Because I believe John was trying to prepare them that, hey, after when I'm gone, you need to follow this guy. And, uh, and so all throughout John's ministry, he always was saying, behold, there's the Lamb of God. Or he said, uh, I must decrease, he must increase. And he always understood the signs and the times that my time, my ministry now must get lower because Christ must be elevated because he is the true son of God. And so, so his disciples, uh, the, having that whole entire thing, when they heard the prophecies and they, they saw Jesus do that, they knew confidently that Jesus was the Messiah. And uh, the second reason is I could see John being like, so what else did Christ say to you? What else did Jesus say? And they say, well, he also said all these things. And then he said this thing about, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Uh, which is weird because we know he's the Messiah. And John, I could just see John saying, well, you know what? Remember that proverb for the future. See, John didn't want his disciples to become offended at Jesus for not doing what they thought Jesus should do. Because Jesus being the Messiah, one of the things that it was prophesied about the Messiah was that he would set the captives free. And we know that a lot of people with the Messiah had more of an earthly understanding of what the Messiah should be doing rather than the spiritual side of all the things that the Messiah was to do. They thought the Messiah was supposed to overtake the Roman ruler, uh, you know, over to free Jerusalem and, and be this amazing general with swords and, and spears and shields and, and mass an army and take it over. But, but the Messiah that God was always intentional about was that it would be a spiritual Messiah that would spiritually liberate people, would set the captives free. And, uh, and so you could see how sometimes John the Baptist's disciples could take offense that Jesus didn't do what they thought he should have done with John because John, I believe, knew that his time was coming near to an end. And it kind of reminds you in that whole essence, sometimes we get offended sometimes with God when God doesn't do the things we think he should do. But really it's because we get offended because we're basing things off of our own limited understanding of the things of God or maybe the perspective of God. And so there's this thing here, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Offense will rob you 
of things, the things of God. Offense will rob you the things of Jesus. And whenever God operates in a way that you think he should operate this way based off of your understanding and you begin to start getting offended with God, you, you will miss out on those things that God has for you and you will totally skip on by those things that he has for you. And so John the Baptist, um, a little bit here, then Jesus kind of goes into, in verse 7, basically into the character of John the Baptist. See, the people were standing around. This wasn't like a private thing here. Actually, they were, they were there out in the midst of all this crowd, and Jesus was healing all these people and touching these people and loving on them. And so they had this discussion kind of publicly. And so all of a sudden, uh, people started thinking, oh my gosh, you know, John the Baptist, he's, he's, he's faltering over here. This guy, he was like the most wild and out, sold out guy for Jesus. Is now he's faltering. And, and, I, and it's interesting because then Jesus goes in to validate John and speak to his character, which is a huge indicator that John was not losing faith. Jesus was speaking. Here's what he says in Matthew 11, 7 through 10. It says, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. That what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now that little end there when he talks about it was written was actually found in Malachi 3. So, so Jesus goes in this whole thing. He goes, so John the Baptist, what did you go out to go see? Did you go out to see somebody who's going to be backward, someone who's wayward, someone who who's, doesn't really have a strong backbone? No, you went out to see a reed that does not be swayed by the wind. He stood strong. He stood strong in what his morals were, stood strong in his convictions. He stood strong in his belief that Christ is the Son of God. He did not be swayed this way or that by the crowds or by leaders. He says, did you go out to see somebody who's dressed in fine clothes, who lived in king's palaces? No! John was wearing camel hair and eating locusts and honey. He was not dressed in the finest palace clothes, okay? And, and in fact, there's this interesting thing because basically we know that John, he easily could have been a man in a palace with highly favored and wearing those fine clothes very easily because we also know that in Scripture, it talks about that basically uh, Herod, um, King Herod at the time, uh, divorced his wife and Herodias divorced her husband, which was Herod's brother, and uh, basically they, they kind of fell for each other, so they decided to divorce their spouse so that way they could marry each other, right? And what happened was is um, Herod and Herodias, uh, they were married in so far as society viewed the matter. From the divine vantage point, though, the relationship was unlawful. So basically what happens here is John doesn't tone down his message at all. Easily he could be fine, but he doesn't tone it down. He begins to speak to King Herod and says, your marriage is unlawful and God doesn't see it as marriage. He sees it as a lifestyle of sin. So John starts kind of going after the king and telling him what's up. Now, John did not shy away from the matter um, that their so-called marriage was actually an agreement to a lifestyle of sin, and God was not fooled with their false titles. Then Jesus says, John is more than a prophet, but he has God's personal messenger dedicated to speaking the truth regardless of what it will cost him. So we know that John the Baptist in... Uh, in Mark 6, 17 through 18, it talks about that King Herod actually had favor with, or, or um, John the Baptist had favor with King Herod. 
And it says that even though he didn't quite agree with everything that John the Baptist was saying, even though those things were very staunch to him, and he took a little bit like he was a little uh, perturbed by that, but when with John the Baptist, though, he still like just kept him in prison and was like, you know, I, I don't know, but he's a man of God. He still respected John the Baptist. He's a man of God. He's a man of valor. And so I'm not going to be uh, the person who's going to execute this guy because I don't want his blood on my hands because I know he's a holy man. And so there was favor there. And so easily, John, all he had to do was tone back the message. And then, and, you know, and he, would, he could be easily having a room in the castle and hanging out with the king and, and thinking that he's going to have influence. But he would not back down. He was not a reed swayed by wind. He was not someone who could be bought with fancy clothes, living in a palace. This man was used to living out in the desert, wearing camel hair, eating locusts and honey. He was not swayed one bit by the things of this world that could sway him and bring him in. It's huge. He was not swayed by who could become his friend, no matter how high up he is in the political ladder or in power ladder, because he was loyal to Christ and God's law alone. It's an amazing thing. And, uh, you know, as you know the story, Herodias obviously didn't like John the Baptist. And uh, basically, long story short, they had a little party, and then her daughter, Herodias' daughter, was dancing, and King Harry was like, hey, you're a great dancer. I'll give you anything you want in the kingdom. And he's probably thinking, do you want a camel? Do you want an elephant? You know, what do you want? And uh, Herodias told her daughter, ask him for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And uh, when she did, he couldn't deny her because he gave his word. And so he went in there and sliced his head off and he put it on a platter. Pretty graphic. But that was kind of the end of John the Baptist there. So Jesus says, he goes, hey, uh, he's, he's, he's also a prophet and he's also the voice that was prophesied about that would prepare the way for the Messiah. And, and then in Matthew eleven eleven, he says, Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So the main point here is that he wanted us to imitate John's passion and zeal for the Lord. He says, you will not burn out if your main fuel source is love for Jesus, the, the love for God and, and, and his word. And, and you will burn out if you have a different fuel source. See, he is a picture of how to live one's life for Jesus in virtue. But as a new covenant believers, we have even greater privilege than the old covenant believers. And that's really what Jesus is trying to say is that John the Baptist is kind of the last of the greats of the old covenant. Because John died before Christ paid the price on the cross, before the Holy Spirit came to earth the day of Pentecost. And so John, he didn't have Holy Spirit living inside of him. John wasn't saved by grace at this time. He literally was living under the old covenant and yet still was a very powerful man of God and was used mightily. But even us now in this new covenant, we could be used even more mightily. We could be used to greater, even greater degrees because we have the Holy Spirit that resides within us and we are saved by grace. And so there's a power and authority that is placed upon the believer because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of his blood, because of his resurrection. There is a victory that we walk in and can carry. Amen. Amen. And so he goes on here. Now, there's John the Baptist is the example. He kind of zeroes in after saying that he's a prophet, saying that he wasn't, you know, a reed swayed by wind. He didn't wear palace clothes. He was a prophet, and he was the greatest born of women in the Old Covenant. And, uh, and then he looks at here in eleven twelve, and here's that verse that we kicked off with. He says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. 
For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? So I went in and I dug a little bit deeper. And now in the English, the word suffers, uh, the second uh, dictionary-like term for that or definition for suffers actually means to allow or to permit so if you took that as the kingdom of heaven allows or permits violence and the violent take it by force. But then I went even deeper looking at the original language, which would be Greek in the New Testament. And there's a couple Greek words that I discovered there. And uh, in Greek, uh, it the suffers violence. So the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Uh, the Greek word there is biadso. And, uh, and the verb means is basically the properly used power to forcibly seize, laying hold of something with positive aggressiveness. Okay, and this word is only used twice in the New Testament, both in a positive light to be forceful, to go after, to pursue, to lay hold of, right? And so there's this aggressiveness. It's kind of like the lady who had the issue of blood, that aggressiveness to latch on to Jesus' cloak because she was desiring healing, that aggressiveness of the crowds that would see Jesus preaching and they would literally be on top of each other trying to get closer to Jesus. There was this aggressiveness to move forward, to forcibly get closer to Christ, right? And that's how this, this, this look here of suffers violence, that, that there's this thing that allows and permits this kind of violence, this kind of, this kind of yearning and desire to forcibly get close to. And then in the Greek word for the violent take it by force is biastes. And it's a noun. It's basically a positive assertiveness used of the believer living in faith, guiding and empowering them to act forcefully, fired up by God to act by his revelation. And it's only used once in the whole entire Bible, and that is in Matthew eleven twelve. 12. So really, if you looked at this scripture, it says, right, the kingdom of heaven, right, allows forcible pursuit and desire, right, to forcefully get close. And the violent or the believer that is fired up by God, by his revelation, and he will take it by force, so it changes the whole entire understanding because initially in our English language, we are kind of limited in our words. In the Greek, there's six words for love. In English, there's one word for love. And so we're kind of limited in our English language. But when you look at the original language, you see, oh my goodness, there's changes everything because suffers and violence are kind of negative words in the English language. In our dictionary, you know, whenever we talk, those are kind of negative words. But and here in the Greek, the, the only kind of thing that they were able to kind of translate it as is that it was violent. It was violent. And there's this thing here where there's this attitude within the walk, the attitude of John the Baptist when he was living his life, that he was violent towards the things of God and that he took the kingdom by force, meaning he grabbed hold of the kingdom forcibly and was bringing it down, that he was speaking the truth, that he was declaring who the Messiah was. He was breaking down strongholds and barriers of the religious Sadducees and Pharisees, that he was speaking out truth even in the midst of where people wanted to kill him and stone him and all of that. And the same thing that you see, that same kind of zeal that happens with Jesus within about the house of prayer when he breaks out the whip and whips the animals in the temple and when he flips tables you see the same kind of zeal in the disciples that would preach the gospel even though they would get stoned there's this thing here is violent it's a violent pursuit against the things of this world and it's not violence by flesh and blood and what we can see and feel but it's a violence in the spiritual realm that you go after and put to death the things of the flesh 
He uses the word violence because it's just the only word Jesus, I think, felt described the point because it was the only time that that word was really used in the New Testament was in that one time. It's violent. It attacks our sinful desires. Paul says in Galatians 5.24, he says, to crucify your flesh and its passions and desires. Crucify your flesh. Not pet it, not put it in a closet, not lock it away. But Paul said, you need to crucify that thing. Crucifixion was a thing when you nailed that thing to a piece of wood, and then you put it up there, and it would take hours and hours. But the real death that happened in crucifixion was from suffocation. It wasn't because of the nails or because you were bleeding out. It was because if you study crucifixion, it was literally a very long, torturous process of you literally suffocating because your lungs filling up with liquid. And you would have to constantly move yourself on the cross so that way you could breathe every time. And Christ did it for three hours. And there's this thing here when you've got to crucify your flesh. This isn't something you put a pet on or, you, you know, keep it aside or, you know, that's just what I deal with. And I've heard people time and time again say, well, you know, I just deal with this and this is just my thing or this is just, you know, my weakness area. And they almost treat it like a pet, but you're supposed to crucify it. It's violent to pursue the kingdom of God. It's violent, and the violent take the kingdom of God by force because they deny themselves. They deny and they crucify their flesh. They pick up the cross and follow Jesus. And there's this aspect here that we're looking at here in the body that you see that all these people from the early disciples to John the Baptist to the prophets of old, that these people were violent for the things of God. Yeah. It's so important for us. It's not just being little lambs and just being like, oh, we just love Jesus and, and, you know, just everything. Sometimes there's a violence with the internal sinful nature of us that you have to handle, you have to battle, and you have to submit it to the things of God. Crucify your flesh. And crucifixion is not just some quick thing like, okay, I just crucified my flesh, I'm good. Crucifixion is a long process to kill it. And some of us are in those battles. But see, some of us don't even try to fight the battle because we think it's just too hopeless. It's just too long. It's just too this. And so you just kind of make room for it in your life. It's a lie. And it will hinder your walk. It will hinder the things that you can do with Jesus. It will hinder the amount of things that you can do in this lifetime while you're here on earth. And it will be a stumbling block. But I'm telling you what Paul said, it, you need to crucify your flesh. I believe what he's talking about there. It's not just it's a very violent and graphic thing but that it's gonna, it takes time to suffocate it. You have to suffocate it. Abstain from it. Replace those things with the things of God. Like I was teaching our youth, I said, you know, sometimes, you know, doing those things or watching those things you shouldn't be watching and those things, and you're like, man, but, but I, I really want that. And sometimes you've got to acquire the taste for the things of God. Meaning you have to, by faith, say, I'm going to open up my word. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend time in prayer. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to listen to worship music in the car instead of, you know, oldies one-on-one or whatever it is. Or to, you know, uh, rock and roll bands or to rap stars and this and that. There's this aspect here where you deny yourself of your flesh. And it's going to be weird. You're not going to really like it. But you got to suffocate. you got to starve your flesh and replace it with the things of God and you will begin to acquire that taste and then as you begin to move forward all of a sudden you will feel that inkling like you know what I really need to get alone with God I just really miss him I just need to get that that taste again I need I need to have that encounter I, you know what this this worldly music just doesn't quite scratch the itch I, I I need 
I need to you know, worship him in the car on my long commute to work. I just need to have that time. And you begin to have a hunger and a thirst for those things. The Bible says to taste and see that the Lord is good. If you do not taste, and you do not, then you cannot see that the Lord is good. You have to taste him. You have to partake of him, of his presence. But you'll never acquire the taste if you never take a taste. If you never have that acquired if you don't ever actually pursue it. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 through 39, earlier on, before the whole thing with John the Baptist, to give even more context, Jesus is challenging the people in the crowds. And he says this, and it's so, so uh, in your face, but it, it, the, the, it's the red letters. And so therefore, he says, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, Jesus said, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus wants us to follow John the Baptist like in his dedication towards God, to the word, to Christ. Those are some pungent words that the Son of God, the lover of my soul, the one who died and paid the price. He has a right to say those things to me because he paid the price for me. Amen. And to deny him that, to skip over that because it doesn't quite line up with your theology is wrong and is a false gospel. You either get Jesus and you get all of him or then you get none of him. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all in your life. Amen. Jesus is declaring here and he's trying to stand, make a standpoint here. He's not saying he wants division in your household. What he is trying to say is that I need to be number one in your life. If I'm number one in your life, then every other relationship in your life will be blessed because of our relationship together. Fathers, mothers, that when you pursue Christ and you have that time and you say my spiritual dedication to God is more important than me just making my kids feel good or because, you know, my kids don't want to wake up in the morning and go to church, we just stay home. You need to set the example because God has placed responsibility on you and that you, by doing that, by crucifying your flesh and guiding and leading your kids to church or leading your kids to prayer time or to Bible time or to whatever it is in your household, those things bless them. You, whenever you get close with God, all of a sudden what happens? The flesh begins to be put at bay. All of a sudden you begin to be more like Christ and you can operate like Christ. When I spend time with Jesus, that is the absolute most time, pinnacle time that I feel like I act like Jesus. And I know I shared this story before. I remember my, my dad, you know, just being raised. It's just something that really stood out to me. But it is that thing that I remember. There was all these things he was dealing with. Uh, he was a mailman on the route. And if you haven't heard this story, if you already have, I apologize. But just for the sake of the sermon here, but he he, he was on this route, and little did I know growing up that there's people on the route that were after him, trying to kill him, okay? And uh, because some people got arrested, and they thought my dad was the snitch, because he's the only guy who's outside of town and not in the hood, but he comes into the hood as a mailman, and he's an outsider. So anyways, so a gang was after our family. I had no idea. I always wondered why we kept going out into the country and going here, or my dad's like was like 
like really trying to find land and really trying to find a home. And I'm like, what's wrong with the home we're in now? You know, and all that. And then my dad would come home carrying that because he knew that every time he went to work, his life was in danger and that our family was in danger. And we didn't even know. I remember he'd come home. And I remember before he latched on to this truth and revelation, he'd come home. I mean, and he would just be very snippy. He would kind of bring all those problems into the house. And I remember he made a decision and I remember because I was a child and I watched my father make this decision to crucify his flesh, not to just come into the house, hurry up and get to the dinner table and eat his food because he was a hardworking guy. But he came and he says, I'm, don't talk to me, don't, don't, don't deal with me. I got to go down, downstairs, and I'm going to turn on worship music. I got to go be with God. And he says, and until I feel a release, and then I come up. There's times you'd be down there for three hours. There's times you'd be down there for an hour. And then when you come up, I saw the transformation from those few seconds he'd come to that door holding all those things. And he would go down there and spend time with God. And he would come upstairs and it was like he goes, it's like all that just melted away. And he was a lot more pleasant to be around. He was, he was the loving father, you know, that, that he should be and all that stuff. And so there's this thing here. I watched as a kid. Your kids are watching your walk. Because of him doing that, that guided me and led me naturally to want to pursue God in the secret place, in the quiet place. It naturally led me there because I saw the transformation. I saw that is that made me then curious for the things of God, that maybe I need to spend time alone with God. And because my dad was close with God and could hear his voice, there's times that even my dad, he, would, he just kind of snapped or, or, or he, you know, you know, disciplined me and, it was, and I was completely innocent. It was those times where it just, it looked bad or this or that and I was innocent. And I remember that I went upstairs, I was sent to my room and I was just like praying to God. I said, I don't know what I just did wrong. I have no idea why I'm being punished. I have no idea why I got yelled at. I have no idea. I said, I, I'm sorry, God, I don't know what's going on. And I was praying and no joke, my dad comes upstairs literally like five minutes later and he says, son, he goes, sit down. He goes, I need to apologize to you. He goes, because the moment that I sent you upstairs to your room, you know, and, and, and it wasn't right, God was all over me and would not leave me alone. And he told me what you did was wrong because your son is my son and I love him more than even you. And he dealt with him. But as a, as a child, I was blown away by that. And, and there's, believe me, there's plenty of times I deserve to be punished, but there was those, that time it was like, wow. I was like, God really sees what's going on. God really knows what's happening here and, and, and will be my, my, you know, he will validate me. He's my, you know, advocate in the times of when I am completely innocent. And it made that real. But you see, if my dad wouldn't have a close relationship with God and didn't know the voice of God, that would never have those experiences. Because of what my father did when he crucified the flesh, whenever he would say, hey, you know what, we're going to have family Bible time. Whenever he would say, you know what, we're not going to put up with this stuff. You're going to church. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what's going on. You're going to church. You're going to be there. You're going to serve. There was no option. It was no, like, he wasn't trying to placate to me to be my best friend. He had to be my father. And you can't be a best friend and a father at that age and stage whenever your children are under the age of 18. You can't. And if you love them, you will look forward and say, you know what? My responsibility right now is that I'm going to be judged at the end by God. And he's going to judge me and he's going to say, he's going to say to me, how did you lead your family? Especially as a man, you're the head of the household. You're the spiritual head of the household, the Bible says. I don't care what society says. The Bible says the man is the spiritual head of the household. And the man is going to have to answer for it more than the wife of where the household was spiritually. 
You think you're going to get away with it. You want to rely just solely on your wife or this. I'm telling you, God doesn't look at like that like like it that way at all. He's not backward. He's not two-faced. He's not a liar. When God wrote it down, he meant for all time. I'm telling you, the more you pursue God, the more you crucify your flesh and go deeper and deal with those things, the better you're going to bless your family, the loved ones that you claim so much you love. The best thing you could do is get closer to God because it'll bless your relationship with them. This is why Jesus said, don't love your kids more than me. You're not worthy of me then. Don't hide behind your kids. Don't hide behind your relationship with your kids. Don't hide behind your relationship with family and this and that and say, well, they're more important. I got to be number one. Trust me with all your other relationships because I love you more than anybody else. My love never quits. And if you give all of you to me, I will make sure that your family and those that you need to love and that you have a relationship with, I will make sure that you will be the best you to love them back. He cares more about your family than even you do. And that could be insane to you. That could be impossible almost. But God loves your family more than you could ever. So many people, they treat heaven as some retirement plan for the afterlife on earth, right? But when you entered the kingdom through salvation given by Jesus, you entered into the Lord's army. You became a warrior for Christ, and warriors are made for war. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, you have to make war. There is a war right now going on all around us in the spiritual realm, the war for souls. Who cares if we face trials and tribulations? My God said his grace is sufficient and his power is perfected when I'm weak. In war, not against flesh and blood, but because against the powers and principalities, against the demonic and the kingdom of hell. You make war when you tithe on your income to further the gospel in this world. You make war and you wage war whenever you operate in a generous spirit. You make war when you get, your, get on your face and intercede for your family, for your loved ones, for your city. You make war whenever you cry out and you worship the Lord that he, his presence inhabits the place that you're in. When you deny your flesh and you crucify and follow the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. When you serve others and when you honor your leaders and each other. You wage war when you share the gospel. You wage war when you pray for the sick and see them healed. And when you cast out demons in his name heaven is not a retirement plan it's a kingdom to advance here and now where what area in your life can you violently attack within yourself that needs to die so christ may be glorified what area and i just want to encourage you today that you would begin to take that before the Lord in your quiet time, in your ride home, that you would take that before the Lord, and that you say, God, what are the areas that I need to be giving up, that I need to crucify, so that way it can move closer to you? That is what our heart's desire should be. What area now do I need to work on? It's a lifelong process, and I'm not saying we're going to be able to do all of it before we, we say goodbye to this earth, but what I'm saying is God is looking at our lives, and the more that I can crucify the areas of my flesh that lead me to a sinful things, that I know that it will better bless those around me. So let the love that you have for your family and let the ultimately most, most, mostly that the love that you have for God leads you to that. Just like we were singing about the love of God, the love of Jesus, it casts out all fears. The love of God should be your inspiration, should be 
you, the thing that eggs you on and say, God, I love you and everything you've done for me. You deserve it all. You deserve it all. You deserve it all. You deserve those times that whenever I don't want to be with you, you deserve it. You, you deserve those things. You deserve me giving up you know, Sundays as a fun day and coming to church early in the morning. You, you deserve that of me. You deserve Let's go ahead and stand to our feet as we pray. God, I thank you right now. I thank you, Jesus. Right now, begin to speak to us right now. We are your children and a shepherd, and we, you are a shepherd and we are your sheep. And a stranger's voice we will not follow, as your word says. We are your children. God, I pray right now. Touch hearts. And highlight the things that we need to crucify.